This is Bernadette from the Murderific True Crime Podcast from Maine, United States. You're in luck because you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You've been warned. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. Let's get started. As always, I want to take the time to thank everyone who continues to support the production of California Dreaming on Patreon. Having the opportunity to create this show for all of you has been and continues to be a tremendous blessing for me. And it's always a pleasure to be able to create content for you each week. And the fact that so many of you believe in the show enough to take the time To click on Patreon and pledge a dollar or two of your hard-earned money is just the icing on the cake. It's enabled me to improve my equipment, to get gifts for listeners, like stickers and magnets and pins. And I know the time is going to come soon when I'm going to need to upgrade the old computer, and it would all be thanks to our patrons. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access all of the bonus content available on Patreon. There are more than a dozen exclusive episodes that haven't been heard anywhere else, including the case of serial killer Rodney Alcala, the cases of Mary Vincent, Linda Sobeck, Rebecca Schaefer, the Jonestown Massacre, the Lost Germans of Death Valley, the case of Hollywood legend Roscoe Arbuckle, the story of the fortune teller murders, and I've done a couple of vacation series bonuses as well. Retea Parsons from Canada, and the Station Nightclub Fire in Rhode Island. And if all goes well, by the time you are listening to this, the newest Patreon bonus should be up, where I examine the controversial career of disgraced LAPD officer Mark Furman. There are literally hours and hours of extra content for as little as $1. This week, longtime supporter of our show, Dave W., made a very sweet and thoughtful post about his contribution to the show to give a little extra for the holidays. And I can't even begin to tell you how moved I am with all of your willingness to support this little endeavor of ours. Even if you aren't on Patreon, your support on social media is just as important. Spreading the word about the show, telling your friends, leaving reviews, everything helps. 
We are finding new listeners every single day. So whatever we are doing, it's working. This week, I'd like to thank our newest patrons, Stephanie L., L. Smith, Angie S., Laura R., Janie W., Susan W., Jorge G., and Conchata R. I'd also like to thank, of course, Dave W., Lacey R., the drop-dead gorgeous host of the Curious AF podcast, Mar W., Rebecca Jane, Tuesday 2, Katina I., Cynthia D., Felicia S., Maureen S., Jennifer M., Crystal M., Belky G., and Amy H., all for giving the show a little boost for the holidays. And Jennifer B., thank you for so generously increasing your pledge before Dave's post. I would also like to thank Lisa Ann, Amanda N., and Elaine F. for their donations to the show via PayPal. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, dreamers. I love you all so much. I can't even tell you what this means to me. And there's just one more thing I want to talk about before I get into today's story. On November 8th, 2018, 28-year-old Ian David Long, armed with a 45 caliber Glock 21 semi-automatic pistol, walked into the Borderline Bar and Grill in the city of Thousand Oaks, California, and opened fire on the crowd of approximately 200 patrons, killing 12 injuring at least 10 others, and then he turned the gun on himself. These are the names of those who lost their lives that night. 27-year-old Tel Orfanos, 33-year-old Daniel Manrique, 23-year-old Justin Meek, 18-year-old Elena Housley, 22-year-old Cody Kaufman, 21-year-old Noel Sparks, 20-year-old Christina Morissette, 21-year-old Jacob Dunham, 21-year-old Blake Dingman, 20-year-old Mark Meza, 48-year-old Sean Adler, and 54-year-old Sheriff Sergeant Ron Hellis. He was one of the first officers to arrive at the scene of the shooting he entered into the bar, exchanged gunfire with the shooter, and suffered multiple fatal gunshot wounds. The next day, wildfires erupted across the state of California, including the Nurse Fire, the Hill Fire, the Woolsey Fire, and the Camp Fire, the latter of which being the largest and deadliest and most destructive fire on record in California history. If you would like to help, I will include the following resources in the show notes and on social media. You can go to www.redcross.org and select California Wildfires. You can text the word CA Wildfires to 90999 to make a $10 donation. You can support the Los Angeles Fire Department by visiting www.supportlafd.org. 
you can go to www.unitedwayla.org and search for Fire Relief Fund. And if you would like to help with the animals that have been displaced or injured, you can donate to the Los Angeles County Animal Care Foundation at www.lacountyanimals.org, the Pasadena Humane Society at www.pasadenahumane.org, or the Humane Society of Ventura County at www.hsbc.org. These areas have been hit particularly hard by this round of wildfires. Our hearts go out to all those who lost their lives in these back-to-back tragedies. Please keep their families in your thoughts as we give thanks across our country this week. So, on to today's show now. I mentioned above in talking about Patreon episodes, Mark Furman. While I was researching his post-LAPD career for that episode, One of the books that he published reminded me of a case that's been on my list for quite some time. His book was entitled The Untold Story of Terry Schiavo's Death. Now, I haven't read Mark Furman's book. I haven't read any of his books, actually. But it got me thinking about the controversy behind Terry's story. It reminded me of the one I had on my list and at least one other landmark case in the United States. And that's what I wanted to talk to my dreamers about today. In this 71st episode of California Dreaming, the tale of death with dignity. Teresa Marie Schindler was born December 3, 1963, in Lower Moreland Township, a suburb of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And she was known as Terry for short. Terry struggled with her weight for much of her childhood, and by the time she was a teenager, she was only 5 foot 3 inches or 1.6 meters tall and weighed about 200 pounds or 91 kilograms. However, by the time she graduated from Archbishop Wood Catholic High School and was getting ready to head off to Bucks County Community College, in Newtown, Pennsylvania, Terry was able to shed 60 pounds or 27.22 kilograms on the Nutrisystem diet program over the course of a year while under the supervision of her doctor. While at Bucks College, Terry met Michael Schiavo in 1982 in a sociology class that they were enrolled in together. The couple began dating and after only five months, they became engaged, and Terry ended up dropping out of college. They got married on November 10, 1984, and resided together still in the suburbs of Philadelphia. At this time, Terry was still maintaining a weight of about 145 pounds, or 65.77 kilograms, and at some point in 1985, Terry had missed her period, so she thought that she might have been pregnant, but it turned out to be a false alarm. In 1986, Terry's parents, the Schindlers, moved to Florida, and the couple decided to follow them down there, moving into her parents' condo in St. Petersburg. When they made the move, Terry was still maintaining her weight for a while, 
but she began to lose weight again. Husband Michael found work as a restaurant manager and Terry found a job as a bookkeeper with an insurance company. By 1987, Terry's weight had dropped to 121 pounds or 54.88 kilograms. And another two years later, Terry missed another menstrual cycle. So she was referred to an OBGYN, though she again was not pregnant. On the morning of February 25th, 1990, Terry collapsed in the hallway of her apartment. Michael called 911, and the paramedics and firefighters arrived. And I read that they found her face down and unconscious and not breathing and without a pulse. And I'm not sure if that is the way that Michael found her and left her that way. But it does not seem from what I read that her husband made any attempts to move her to a face-up position. It's clearly reported that paramedics arrived and found her face down and attempted to resuscitate her. But I'm not clear if Michael tried to resuscitate Terry prior to the arrival of paramedics, although it doesn't seem like he made any attempts, but I'm not sure. Terry was rushed to Humana Northside Hospital. The paramedics had intubated and ventilated her en route. It was later determined that Terry collapsed as a result of having gone into cardiac arrest. There was a note on her medical chart that indicated Terry had been attempting to keep her weight down with some rigorous dieting, which included drinking mostly liquids, primarily 10 to 15 glasses of iced tea a day, and she was noted as having abnormally low levels of potassium in her system. This is what doctors believe caused Terry's heart to temporarily stop, as a serious consequence of low potassium can be heart rhythm abnormalities, including sudden arrhythmia death syndrome, and this in turn cut the oxygen supply to our brain. So, even though she was resuscitated by paramedics, Terry did slip into a coma. In May of 1990, Terry came out of her coma but remained unconscious, and she would remain in what doctors would diagnose her one year later with as persistent vegetative state. On May 12th, Terry was transferred to College Harbor Nursing Home, where she would remain for 50 days. On June 18th, a court appointed Terry's husband, Michael, as her legal guardian. Her parents claimed that this was a move made unbeknownst to them, but I also read that this was an appointment made without dispute from them. So from 1990 to 1993, Michael continued to live with Terry's parents rent-free for much of the time, and their relationship was reportedly amicable. On June 30th, 1990, Prudential Insurance terminated Terry's medical coverage. She was discharged from College Harbor and admitted to Bayfront Hospital, which is a state-designated facility for brain injuries. She stayed there for 10 weeks, all of it paid for out of the pocket by Terry's parents. When she arrived, she was awake and her eyes were open. She would close her eyes to any sort of threat that came close to her face, and verbal output was reported by the therapist back at College Harbor. On September 1st, 1990, Terry was taken home for 100 days with Michael to be cared for at her parents' condo. 
but they all became overwhelmed with the numerous emergencies with Terry's feeding tube, which was implanted directly into her stomach to deliver nutrition, as well as Terry's fits of coughing. So they took Terry back to College Harbor for a few weeks, again at her parents' expense. In November of 1990, Michael traveled to the University of California, San Francisco for experimental nerve stimulation with a thalamic stimulator, doing so with money he was able to raise. It's a device that can suppress tremors, such as those caused by Parkinson's disease or essential tremor. It wasn't approved for use by the FDA, or the Food and Drug Administration, until August 4, 1997, almost seven years later. The installation of the stimulator is invasive and is only used when the tremors are incapacitating and medication isn't working. One or more electrodes are implanted in the brain that leads to a neurostimulator, which also has to be implanted. The electrodes stimulate the area of the thalamus, or the part of the brain that controls movement and muscle function. Terry was then sent to Meadowbrook in San Jose for a month of rehab, but the treatment was unsuccessful. Michael returned to Florida with Terry in January of 1991, and she was admitted to Mediplex Rehabilitation Center in Brandonton, Florida. In February, Terry showed signs of discomfort and pain during physical therapy, and a bone scan was ordered. On March 5th, the bone scan revealed that Terry had prior traumatic injuries to multiple ribs on both sides, injuries to the joints in both sides of her pelvis, both knees, both ankles, several thoracic vertebrae, and her right thigh. She also showed a minor compression fracture in her L1 vertebrae. I will talk more about these injuries a little bit later on. On July 19, 1991, Terry was transferred to the Sable Palms Skilled Care Facility for custodial care, where she received neurological testing and regular speech and occupational therapy until 1994. Also in 1991, her husband Michael entered into the nursing program at St. Petersburg Community College to help provide better care for Terry. He would go on to become a respiratory therapist and an emergency room nurse. And it would be about a year after Terry's collapse that her primary care physician came to the conclusion that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state that is irreversible. Not long after that, Terry's parents began to encourage Michael to move on with his life and to begin dating, which he will eventually do. And in May of 1992, Michael finally moved out of the Schindler's condo. Also in 1992, Michael filed a malpractice lawsuit against Terry's OBGYN for failing to diagnose her infertility as being caused by bulimia. She had visited the doctor because she had stopped menstruating, but he did not consider her medical history, which could have revealed an eating disorder. Terry's friend testified during the case that they knew her to be bulimic, and that November, Michael won his case and was awarded $6.8 million by the jury. Later, before an appeal was filed, the case was settled, and the award was reduced to $2 million when it was determined that Terry was partially at fault for the condition that she was in. 
After all the attorney's fees and expenses, the case was settled in January of 1993, and Michael received $300,000, and $750,000 was put into a trust fund for Terry's medical care and was placed under the control of a third party. On February 14, 1993, Michael and Terry's parents had a disagreement over which direction the treatment and therapy should go for Terry. And according to Michael, Terry's parents demanded that he give them a portion of the malpractice money. Following this argument, the parties ceased speaking to one another. And sometime in mid-1993, Michael put in a request for a do-not-resuscitate order after Terry suffered a urinary tract infection. This order would later be rescinded after Terry's parents protested it. On July 29, 1991, Terry's parents, or the Schindlers, began to challenge Michael's guardianship over Terry and attempted to have him removed as her legal guardian. But on March 1st, the guardian ad litem, or the person the court appointed to investigate the best interests of Terry, found that Michael had acted appropriately and attentively towards Terry and her care. Also that month, Terry was moved to Palm Gardens of Largo, a skilled nursing facility in Seminole, Florida. Also in 1993, one of the nursing homes that Terry had been placed in attempted to obtain a restraining order against Michael because he was demanding more attention and care be given to his wife, which would have been at the expense of other patients' care. The restraining order was not issued. Michael would eventually reach the conclusion that Terry's state was irreversible and after consulting with her physicians, had almost all therapy for Terry halted. In 1995, Michael began a relationship with a woman he met at a dentist's office named Jody Santonzi. Fast forward to May of 1998, more than eight years since Terry fell into this persistent vegetative state. Michael filed a petition to have Terry's feeding tube removed but her parents fought the petition. Richard Pierce was appointed by the court as a second guardian ad litem. On December 20th, 1998, he reported that Dr. Jeffrey Karp's opinion of Terry's condition and prognosis was largely shared amongst physicians who had been recently involved in Terry's care and her medical treatment. Pierce came to the conclusion that Terry was legally in a persistent vegetative state as defined by Florida statutes. And this included the absence of voluntary action and an inability to communicate or interact purposefully. Furthermore, the chances of any improvement to a functional level was essentially zero. Pierce did find that there was no possibility of improvement, but also that Michael's decision might be influenced by the potential inheritance of what was left of Terry's estate, as long as he stayed married to her. Citing a lack of a living will and questions swirling around Michael's motivations, Pierce recommended denying his petition to have her feeding tube removed. He also cited that there may be an issue of a conflict of interest when it came to Terry's parents as well, since if Michael were to divorce Terry, as they had been wanting him to, they would have inherited the remainder of her estate instead of him. It was then in November of 1998 
that Terry's parents became aware of that bone scan that I mentioned earlier with all of those injuries. They, along with Dr. William Hamsfar, would claim that the trauma that was revealed in that bone scan were as a result of Terry being abused by Michael. However, with only the scan information, forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Baden suggested that a head injury caused the trauma. Then, when he learned her full history, he agreed that the trauma in the bone scan was consistent with a full cardiac arrest, the fall, the CPR attempts, and the eventual resuscitation. The Schindlers filed a petition for a full evidentiary hearing to evaluate this evidence, but that motion was denied. By 2000, Michael was issued a license for nursing by the state of Florida's Department of Health. Because of the lack of a living will, a trial was held in the courtroom of Pinellas County Judge George Greer during the week of January 24, 2000. By this time, it was approaching the 10-year anniversary of Terry having fallen into this persistent vegetative state. The purpose of this court proceeding was to determine what Terry Schiavo's wishes would have been regarding life-prolonging procedures. The attorney Michael had representing him was George Fellows. He had won a landmark right-to-die case previously before the Florida Supreme Court in 1990. During the course of the trial, 18 witnesses came forward to testify to Terry's medical condition and her end-of-life wishes. Michael claimed that his wife would not want to be kept on a machine where her chances of recovery were minuscule. Terry's parents would claim that their daughter was a devout Roman Catholic who would not want to violate the church's teachings on euthanasia by refusing nutrition and hydration. In February, after considering the testimony, Judge Greer ruled in favor of Michael's 1998 petition granting authorization to discontinue artificial life support for Terry, ruling that she would choose to have had the feeding tube removed. In the decision, the court found that Terry was indeed in a persistent vegetative state and that she had made reliable oral declarations that she would have wanted the feeding tube removed. Now, dreamers, I wanted to pause here for a moment because I was curious as to in what way they found Terry had made reliable oral declarations that she wanted the feeding tube removed. So I looked at the court ruling document and it stated, quote, There are no written declarations by Terry Schiavo as to her intention with regarding this issue. Therefore, the court is left with oral declarations allegedly made to parties and non-parties as to her feelings on the subject. The testimony before this court reveals that she made comments or statements to five persons, including her husband and her mother. There was a lot of testimony concerning the Karen Ann Quinlan case in New Jersey. Mrs. Schindler testified that her daughter made comments during the television news reports of the father's attempt to have life support removed to the effect that they should just leave Karen alone. Mrs. Schindler first testified that those comments were made when Terry was between 17 and 20 years of age, but after being shown copies of news accounts, agreed that she was perhaps 11 or 12 years of age at the time. A witness called by the respondents testified to similar conversations with Terry Schiavo, 
but stated that they occurred during the summer of 1982. I will discuss Karen Ann Quinlan's case at the end of this episode. While that witness appeared believable at the offset, the court noted two quotes from the discussion between she and Terry Schiavo that raises serious questions about the time frame. Both quotes are in the present tense. Upon cross-examination, the witness did not alter them. The first quote involved a bad joke and used the verb is. The second quote involved the response from Terry, which used the word are. The court is mystified as to how these present tense verbs would have been used some six years after the death of Karen Ann Quinlan. The court further notes that this witness had quite specific memory during trial, but much less memory a few weeks earlier on deposition. At trial, she mentioned seeing the television movie on Karen Ann Quinlan and had no hesitancy in testifying that this was a replay of that movie and that she watched such a replay at college in Pennsylvania. She also knew what song appeared on the TV program on a Friday evening when the petitioner was away at McDonald's training school. While the court certainly does not conclude that the bad joke comment did not occur, the court is drawn to the conclusion that this discussion most likely occurred in the same time frame as the similar comments to Mrs. Schindler. This could well have occurred during this time frame since the witness and Terry, together with their families, spent portions of summer vacation together, which would have included the mid-1970s. Michael Schiavo also testified as to a few discussions that he had had with his wife concerning life support and testified that she would not want to be kept alive in such a state. So the court ruled based on things Terry said throughout her life and about being kept on life support, things said in passing conversations over the years prior to her having fallen into this vegetative state. So bear that in mind, dreamers. Have this conversation with your loved ones. Get it in writing if you need to. Otherwise, there could be some lengthy battles going on between your loved ones. The court's decision was upheld by the Florida 2nd District Court of Appeal, and this ruling would become known as Schiavo 1 in later rulings to come. In April of 2000, Terry was transferred to Woodside Hospice in Pinellas Park. Terry's parents filed a motion to permit assisted feeding of Terry which is not considered a life-prolonging procedure under Florida law. But because records reflect that Terry was unresponsive to swallowing tests, which was required to have a feeding tube, the judge ruled that she was not capable of orally ingesting sufficient nutrition and hydration to sustain life and denied their motion. In 2000, Terry's parents challenged Michael's guardianship they accused him of wasting the assets within the guardianship account by having Terry transferred to Pinellas Park Hospice when it was clear that she was not terminal, according to medical guidelines for hospice care. In the meantime, while Michael was in a relationship with Jody, the couple began having children, and he was still legally married to Terry. According to Michael, he chose not to divorce his wife and relinquish his guardianship because he wanted to make sure her wishes to not be kept alive were carried out. The Schindler's motion was denied, finding that there was not sufficient evidence and some of it was irrelevant. The court set the date of April 21, 2001 for the feeding tube to be removed. In April of 2001, 
the Schindlers filed another motion for relief from judgment citing new evidence of Terry's wishes. But Judge Greer denied the motion as ultimately under the Florida Rules of Civil Procedure. The Second District Court of Appeal upheld the decision but remanded the issue so the Schindlers could have a chance to file a new motion. On April 24, 2001, Terry's feeding tube was removed. Her parents filed a lawsuit against Michael, accusing him of perjury, and this was assigned to a different judge and a different court. And this judge, Frank Casada, issued a court-ordered injunction to halt the removal of Terry's feeding tube until this matter was settled. The feeding tube was replaced two days later on April 26, 2001. Michael filed an immediate appeal, and the Second District Court of Appeals reversed Judge Casada's ruling. While simultaneously, Michael filed another motion to enforce the mandate of the guardianship court that ruled the feeding tube was to be removed. The Second District Court of Appeals denied this motion. All of these decisions were published in a single order and became known as Schiavo II in later court rulings. On August 10, 2001, Judge Greer was presented a motion from the Schindlers that indicated that there was new medical treatments being developed that could restore cognitive ability in such a way that Terry would be able to make the decision herself to continue life-prolonging treatments. They also motioned that Michael be removed as Terry's guardian, as well as for Judge Greer to recuse himself from the case. Judge Greer denied all of their motions. Therefore, the Schindler's case was appealed by the Second District Court of Appeals. And again, on October 17, 2001, the Court of Appeals upheld Judge Greer's denials of the motions to remove Michael and recuse the judge. The court did acknowledge, however, that their opinion misled the trial court, and they remanded the question of Terry's wishes back to the trial court and required an evidentiary hearing be held. But this time, the court made the specifications that five board-certified neurologists were to testify at the hearing. The Schindlers were going to be allowed to choose two of the doctors to present their findings at the evidentiary hearing, and Michael would be allowed to call two rebuttal experts to testify on his behalf. And the trial court itself would appoint a brand new independent physician to examine and evaluate the condition in which Terry was currently in. These decisions would be known as Schiavo III in later court rulings. One year later, in October of 2002, per the remand of the Second District Court of Appeals, the evidentiary hearing was held in Judge Greer's court to determine whether newly developed therapy treatments could assist in restoring any part of Terry's cognitive function. For the new trial, a new CAT scan was performed and it was reflected that Terry had severe cerebral atrophy and an EEG showed no measurable brain activity. The five doctors were chosen. Dr. William Maxfield, a radiologist, and four neurologists, Dr. William Hamsfar, Dr. Ronald Cranford, Dr. Melvin Greer, no relation, and Dr. Peter Bambakidis. They were tasked with examining Terry's medical records, brain scans, videos of her, and herself in person. Dr. Cranford, 
Dr. Greer, and Dr. Bamkidis were all in agreement that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state. Dr. Maxfield and Dr. Hamsfar testified that she was actually in a minimally conscious state. There were approximately six hours of videotape of Terry with her mom and Dr. Hamsfar. The tape was reviewed in its entirety by Judge Greer, and he made the notation that Terry clearly does not consistently respond to her mother. However, the Schindlers and those who support their efforts to keep Terry alive made a compilation of emotional reactions from Terry in those six hours and edited it down to about five and a half minutes. They uploaded this video to public websites. But it was all in vain. Judge Greer ruled that Terry was indeed in a persistent vegetative state and was beyond hope of ever improving. By this time, Terry was going on 13 years in this condition. The ruling was appealed again, but it was upheld by the Florida 2nd District Court of Appeal, and this decision would be known as Schiavo 4 in future court rulings. In 2003, the Schindlers doubled down on their efforts to drum up publicity for Terry's situation as they began to lobby hard to keep their daughter alive. They tapped pro-life activist Randall Terry to be their spokesperson and continued to pursue every single legal option available to them. On September 11, 2003, the Schindlers petitioned the court to forestall the removal of Terry's feeding tube so she could undergo eight weeks of therapy. Along with their petition, they presented five affidavits, four from members of the Schindler family and one from Dr. Alexander T. Gimon. They also presented affidavits from three speech professionals and two nurses. One of the nurses stated in her affidavit to the court that she was able to feed Terry orally, but Michael demanded that she not do that as it was considered to be a form of therapy. And she also stated that when she was brought in to care for Terry, all she was told was to quote, do what Michael Schiavo tells you or you will be terminated. There were also standing orders to absolutely have no contact with the Schindler family, but she would call them anyway. On September 17, 2003, Judge George Greer denied the Schindler's petition. In his ruling, he said, quote, This petition is an attempt by Mr. and Mrs. Schindler to relitigate this entire case. It isn't even a veiled or disguised attempt. The exhibits relied upon by them clearly demonstrate this to be true. He also said that he did not believe what the nurse had said about her interactions with Michael Schiavo, as the Schindlers would have subpoenaed her much sooner for the 2000 evidentiary hearing. On October 10th, the Schindler's last remaining appeal was dismissed, and on October 15, 2003, Terry's feeding tube was removed for the second time. But dreamers, this is not over yet. On October 21st, 2003, Florida State Representative Frank Atkinson and the state legislature passed Terry's law in an emergency session which, in turn, gave then-Governor Jeb Bush the authority to intervene in Terry's case. 
Governor Bush immediately issued an order for the feeding tube to be reinserted, and in order to do so, he sent the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or the FDLE, to take Terry out of hospice immediately. She was transported to Morton Plant Rehabilitation Center in Clearwater, Florida, and it was there her feeding tube was surgically reinserted, and subsequently she was returned back to hospice care. Per the legislation that was enacted, another guardian ad litem was assigned, which was Dr. J. Wolfson. He was tasked with determining what is in the best interest of Terry and submit his reports directly to Governor Bush. In part of his report, he wrote that the Schindler stated that even if Terry told them that she wanted to have artificial nutrition removed, that they would not do it. And despite this being painful and difficult, they do acknowledge that their daughter is in a diagnosed persistent vegetative state. So 2004 rolled around, and it was now Terry's 14th year in this state. And as you've probably guessed, Michael disagreed with Governor Bush's stepping in on his wife's case, so he sought the representation of the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, while the Schindlers were doing everything that they could to intervene with the backing of Terry's law. However, that wouldn't last long either. On May 19, 2004, Judge W. Douglas Baird overturned Terry's law when Schindlers presented their case again. Judge Baird, mind you, was a circuit judge in the Florida Sixth Circuit, the same as Judge Greer. And the Schindlers appealed again but on September 23rd, the Florida Supreme Court upheld the ruling, agreeing that Terry's law was unconstitutional and it was struck down. The Schindlers appealed again. However, on January 24, 2005, the United States Supreme Court refused to hear the case. On February 23rd, the Schindlers filed a motion for a relief from judgment pending further medical evaluations. They wanted Terry to be given a functional MRI as well as some swallowing therapy called Vitastim. Along with their motion, they submitted 33 affidavits from various specialized doctors, speech and language pathologists, therapists, and neuropsychologists, all urging that Terry be given these new tests. On February 25, 2005, Judge Greer denied the Schindler's motion and ordered Terry's feeding tube removed at 1 p.m. on Friday, March 18, 2005. On February 28, the Schindler's filed a motion requesting permission to give Terry food and water by natural means, and a second one asking for permission to attempt to feed Terry by mouth. Their motions were denied by Judge Greer on March 8, basically because... What they are asking for is to experiment on Terry. Judge Greer also dismissed all of their physicians' affidavits because they were submitted based on limited information that they received from news reports or video clips and not all of the extensive medical examinations that Terry had previously undergone. On March 11, 2005, media tycoon Robert Herring offered $1 million to Michael if he agreed to wave his guardianship over to Terry's parents. Michael turned down the offer. On March 17th, 
members of the Florida legislature considered a bill that would make removing food and water from patients in a persistent vegetative state illegal without a living will. The bill passed in the Florida House of Representatives, but it was defeated in the Florida Senate. That same day, U.S. Senators Bill Frist and Michael Enzi announced that Terry was going to be called to testify before the United States Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions 11 days later on March 28th in Washington, D.C. Though nobody expected Terry would testify for obvious reasons, the move extended witness protection to her, which required her feeding tube to be kept in. On March 18th, Judge Greer stuck down the subpoena calling Terry to testify in Washington, D.C. as unconstitutional, and with that, Terry's feeding tube was removed for the third and final time. On March 20th, the United States Congress approved the emergency legislation, the Act for the Relief of the Parents of Teresa Marie Schiavo, also known as the Palm Sunday Compromise because it was passed on Palm Sunday. It was to allow Terry's case to be moved into federal court. On March 21st, the Schindlers filed a request for an emergency injunction with the United States District Court for the Middle District of Florida and Tampa. But the following day, on March 22nd, Judge James D. Whittemore refused to order the feeding tube to be reinserted. Three Florida neurologists viewed 12 of Terry's CT scans and stated, that it was the most severe brain damage they'd ever seen, and they doubt that there was any activity going on in the higher levels of her brain. Furthermore, the chance of this person recovering is zero. On March 23rd, the Florida Senate debated the bill that would make removing food and water from patients with persistent vegetative states illegal without a living will again, but they rejected it. The same day, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta denied the motion to reinsert the feeding tube. The Schindlers immediately appealed to the United States Supreme Court, but on March 21st, the court refused to grant a judicial review. Also on March 24th, Judge Greer denied a petition for the Department of Children and Family Services to intervene on behalf of Terry and he signed an order forbidding the department from taking Terry or removing her from hospice. Further, he directed that every sheriff in the state of Florida to actively enforce his order. The order was appealed, which resulted in an automatic stay. And while the stay was in effect, the FDLE prepared to take custody of Terry to transfer her to a hospital and to have her feeding tube surgically reinserted. Once Judge Greer was made aware of the automatic stay, he lifted his order and both sides stood down. Governor Bush, despite pressure from the right, chose to abide by the court order. If the governor had ignored Judge Greer's order and attempted to have Terry removed from hospice, there would have likely been a confrontation between the Pinellas Park Police Department and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents. On March 27th, Terry was given her last rites. On March 30th, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta agreed to consider a petition by the Schindlers to have a new hearing to decide 
if the feeding tube should be reinserted. Later that same day, the court denied the petition. And on March 31st, 2005, 15 years, one month, and 11 days after her collapse, Terry Schiavo died at 9.03 a.m. Terry's autopsy revealed extensive injury to her brain. The brain itself only weighed half of what it's normally expected to weigh of a female at her age, height, and weight, an effect caused by the loss of a massive number of neurons. Microscopic examination revealed extensive damage to nearly all regions of her brain. The neuropathological changes in her brain were precisely the type seen in patients who enter PBS during cardiac arrest. Throughout the cerebral cortex, the large neurons that comprise 70% of cortical cells critical to the functioning of the cortex were completely lost. The pattern of damage to the cortex, with injury tending to worsen from the front of the cortex to the back, was also typical. There was damage to important relay circuits deep in the brain, another pathological finding in the cases of PVS. The damage was irreversible and no amount of therapy or treatment would have regenerated the massive loss of neurons. So in June of 2005, Mark Furman published his book on the case. His focus was more on the night that Terry collapsed as opposed to the events that took place over the ensuing 15 years. I don't know if over the course of those years, if Terry's parents had any suspicions about the morning that their daughter collapsed, but they were very much in support of Furman's book as it came out about three months after her death. In it, he discusses some of the conflicting information coming from Michael about that morning, whether or not he saw her, whether or not they had a fight, etc. In his book, Furman postulated a number of scenarios as to what he speculated happened that morning. The first one was that when Terry collapsed, that perhaps he attempted to render some help but failed and was embarrassed by how much or how little he did or didn't do. I kind of hinted at that in the beginning when I first read the details of how paramedics arrived that it seemed as though they had found her face down. I don't know if it's true or not. That's in the report that I read. I thought maybe he might have been afraid to move her or something like that. Then Furman suggested that perhaps he heard her fall but didn't respond right away because they had had an argument and he was emotional or stubborn or angry or he just didn't care. Or maybe while they were arguing, he saw her begin to have difficulty breathing and that her heart was going into cardiac arrest. She collapsed and he didn't do anything to render aid. Or the most damning suggestion of all is that perhaps the couple had a physical altercation and during the course of the fight that she collapsed and perhaps he tumbled down with her, causing those injuries to her body that were discovered in that bone scan. And that's what Furman is pointing to as evidence of foul play. And Michael has never been made to account for that day. To be honest, I don't know what to make of the case either side of it, Michael or Terry's parents. I don't know how much Michael had a hand in Terry's collapse, but it seemed as though she was malnourished, possibly bulimic, although her parents would deny that. 
Michael also seemed to be as attentive as he could be for those 15 years, fighting against her parents' wishes all along, but sticking with her care. But the reason they fought back and forth all those years were not because of Terry's right to die. It was because it was never put in writing. And the decision, in the absence of that, was with her husband. The debate for them may have had to do with money in part. I don't know that, but both sides were accused of such. But the Schindlers insisted there was hope for Terry. And that desperation, I can very much understand. Michael would say that he wanted to see that his wife's wishes to not be kept on life support were met, and she would not have wanted to be kept in this vegetative state for years on end, that she would have preferred a dignified passing, as opposed to being used as a political pawn without any say in the matter whatsoever, which is quite undignified. Though not the same scenario, when I researched Mark Furman's book, It reminded me of a story of a young woman from right here in Southern California, from Anaheim specifically, who found herself in a place where she wanted to be able to make a choice because at that time in California, there were no choices. And that's what's at the heart of these stories today, dignity. It's a concept that both Terry's husband and her parents should have given more consideration in their 15 years long game of tug of war over Terry's life. Brittany Lauren Maynard was born November 19, 1984, in Anaheim, California. She was intelligent and driven. She graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, earning her bachelor's degree in psychology in 2006 from their College of Letters and Science. She came back down to Southern California and graduated from the University of California, Irvine's School of Education with a master's in education. Having been wanting to travel the world since she was in high school, Brittany went abroad to teach in orphanages in Nepal, Vietnam, Cambodia, among other countries. So yeah, she was quite an exceptional young woman. And in 2012, she would marry Dan Diaz. In the spring of 2013, Brittany began experiencing some very intense headaches that seemed to come out of nowhere. She went to a neurologist, but because of Brittany's young age and relatively good health, she was told she was suffering from migraines. She was given a prescription and sent home. If you listening have heard Brittany's story, then you know that the problem wasn't that simple. But according to experts in the medical field, it is not uncommon for this to be the initial reaction. According to Sean Grady, chairman of the neurosurgery department at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, he stated in an interview, quote, A young woman with migraine syndrome, you wouldn't think about a malignant brain tumor. And CEO of the American Brain Tumor Association agreed, stating in her interview, quote, What Brittany experienced is common. It sounds to me like she's having general symptoms. 
What often happens is it isn't until one or all of these things come on really powerfully or you have a seizure that it gets you to the ER and to the diagnosis. While Brittany and her husband Dan were vacationing in California's wine country on New Year's Eve of 2013, Brittany became very sick and Dan rushed her to a local hospital. On the way there, he called Brittany's mom, Debbie, to tell her that they were on their way. Debbie booked the next flight up and when she arrived, she saw the nurses holding Brittany sitting up and the sight caused her to think that Brittany was dead. The next day, January 1st, 2014, Brittany was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. More specifically, grade 2 astrocytoma. Now dreamers, I am not great with medical terminology, so I'm going to do the best that I can here. This type of cancer begins in a particular kind of glial cell, star-shaped brain cells in the cerebrum called astrocytes. This type of tumor doesn't usually spread outside the brain and spinal cord, therefore it doesn't affect other organs. Astrocytomas are the most common glioma and can occur in most parts of the brain, sometimes the spinal cord. Astrocytoma can develop at any age, with the lower grade types more often found in children and young adults, while the high grade type is prevalent in adults. Brittany underwent a partial craniotomy, which is the surgical removal of part of the bone from the skull to expose the brain. Specialized tools are used to remove a section of bone called the bone flap. It is temporarily removed and then replaced after the procedure is completed. Brittany had a partial resection of her temporal lobe. What that is is a surgery that can lower the number of seizures that you have, making them less severe or even stopping them from happening. During this operation, the doctor removes some part of your brain where the seizures originate from. But by April, Brittany's cancer returned and her diagnosis was elevated to a grade 4 astrocytoma, also referred to as a glioblastoma multiform, or GBM, and she was given a prognosis of about 6 months to live. GBM is the most common and most malignant primary brain tumor. It grows and spreads to other parts of the brain quickly and aggressively and can become large before symptoms occur, which typically begins with sudden seizures. Surgery is possible unless such surgery will cause neurological damage, but because of the manner in which it spreads in the brain, complete surgical removal is impossible. Radiotherapy almost never cures GBM, but it can lengthen life expectancy, and the prognosis for those with GBM is the worst compared to other forms of brain cancer. It is rare for one to live for more than three years, with a median survival rate of 17 weeks. A little over four months without treatment 30 weeks with radiation, and 37 weeks with surgical removal of most of the tumor followed by radiation therapy. 
There was no other way to know without completely opening up Brittany's brain, which is impossible to do without causing her death. The one thing Brittany was certain of, she did not want to endure a death where brain cancer slowly and painfully took her life away. In California, where Brittany lived at the time, it was illegal for her to choose to end her own life through assisted suicide based on the principle of the right to die. It is a concept grounded in the opinion that we, as human beings, are entitled to end our own lives or undergo voluntary euthanasia. But it is understood that this right should be given to a person with a terminal illness, without the will to continue living, should be allowed to end their own life by either using assisted suicide or to decline life-prolonging treatment. Academics, philosophers, and various religions long debate the ethics of assisted suicide, so it's been an issue dealt with, at least here in the United States, on a state-by-state basis. But for Brittany, when it came time to make that choice, she looked to the North, to the state of Oregon, who had already passed its death with dignity law long before any other state would. As it stands today, six states and Washington, D.C. have a death with dignity law on their books. Oregon being the first to enact the law 24 years ago with their Death with Dignity Act of 1994, and it was reaffirmed in 1997 when a measure to repeal it was defeated. Washington State enacted its Death with Dignity Act in 2008, followed by Vermont's Patient Choice and Control at the End of Life Act in 2013, then California's End of Life Act approved in 2015, followed by Colorado and Washington, D.C. in 2016, and finally, Hawaii is the most recent with its Our Care, Our Choice Act of 2018. The state of Montana does not currently have a statute safeguarding physician-assisted death, But in 2009, the Montana Supreme Court ruled that there was nothing in the state law that prohibited a physician from honoring a terminally ill, mentally competent patient's request by prescribing medications to hasten the patient's death. And since that ruling, several bills have been introduced to codify or ban the practice, but neither have passed. So, at the time of Brittany's diagnosis, the option to end her life was only available in Oregon, Washington State, and Vermont. So Brittany left the state of California and moved to Oregon because she made the decision that she wanted to take advantage of the state's death with dignity law rather than allow the brain cancer to ravage her. Death with dignity for Brittany was the best option for herself and her family. After she made her decision, Brittany partnered with Compassion and Choices in order to create the Brittany Maynard Fund, which works towards legalizing assisted death in states where it's illegal. And in the months to come, Brittany began ticking off items on her bucket list. She traveled to several places in the United States, including Yellowstone National Park, Alaska, And the last item she made it to towards the end of October of 2014 was the Grand Canyon. 
The morning after, she awoke to one of the worst and most painful seizures that she had experienced. She had a date set by then, November 1st, just a few days away. Her husband Dan's birthday was on the 26th of October, and she wanted to celebrate that with him one last time, and that would be it. Dreamers, I remember when it was reported that she had set the date. I closely followed the story to see if she would move forward as planned. I recall it being reported on the 29th of October that Brittany said that the time didn't seem right. And I remember thinking, I wonder if she was going to try to push it back. Maybe spend Thanksgiving with her family perhaps even to Christmas. But it didn't seem likely because she was already getting past her six-month prognosis. And it would not be. On November 2nd, 2014, it was reported to the media that Brittany ended her life on the 1st of November as planned. She was surrounded by her mom, her stepdad, her husband, and her best friend. In her final Facebook post, she wrote, Goodbye to all my dear friends and family that I love. Today is the day that I have chosen to pass away with dignity in the face of my terminal illness, this terrible brain cancer that has taken so much from me, but would have taken so much more. Goodbye, world. Spread good energy and pay it forward. A year later, Dan talked about the day Brittany died. He highlighted the importance of Brittany or anyone with terminal illness who chooses this path, that they be physically able to consume the medications on their own, that nobody else can do it for them. No doctor, no member of the family, no designated other person, only the person taking the medication. And she drank and went to sleep. Brittany's death certificate would reflect that her cause of death was brain tumor. In the months leading up to her death, Brittany ignited the debate in the United States when it came to the right to die. Brittany stood apart from the average person looking for physician-assisted death. At the time, in Oregon, the average age of a patient was 71. Brittany shifted the way Americans looked at it, and people of her age were suddenly interested. It wasn't just an elderly person issue anymore, and her going public and advocating for death with dignity legislation gave a new face to the movement, and in many ways, It would be beneficial to others in the future who find themselves faced with this difficult decision. But not everyone was on board with Brittany's decision. If it were me, I can't say what I would choose to do if I were put in that position. But I am comfortable with choices for myself and for anybody. I'm not ever going to sit here and tell any of you listening what I feel is right or wrong. You know that about me and it's not my place. What might not feel right for me isn't the same for everyone 
and I would never tell anyone any differently, think of them differently, or love them differently. Some choices are meant to be personal, and the government is often a roadblock to some of these things. But having the freedom to choose is really important to me, to all of us. Even if I don't agree with some of the choices other people make, it's not my business. And that's not what this is about here. But there will always be those who feel it's wrong and will tell you. Brittany Maynard was no exception. Even some terminally ill people came forward as Brittany was out there promoting death with dignity legislation to tell her that they did not agree with what she was doing. And one of them was Kara Tibbetts. On October 8, 2014, she wrote, Dear Brittany Maynard, This morning my best friend and I read your story. My heart ached for you, and I'm simply grieved by your terminal brain tumor. For the less than six months the doctors gave you, just past your 29th birthday. With a heavy heart, I left my home and headed for my oncologist. I too am dying, Brittany. My oncologist and I sat for a long time with hurting hearts for your story. We spoke in gentle tones discussing your hard path that you are being asked to travel. I came home and my friend and I sat at the foot of my five-year-old's bed and prayed for you. We simply prayed that you would hear my words from the most tender and beautifully broken place of my heart. We prayed for you that you would hear my words that are on paper coming from a place of tender love and knowing. Knowing what it is to know the horizon of your days that once felt limitless now feels to be dimming. So hear these words from a heart full of love for you. Brittany, your life matters. Your story matters. And your suffering matters. Thank you for stepping out from the privacy of your story and sharing it openly. We see you. We see your life. And there are countless lovers of your heart that are praying you would change your mind. Brittany, I love you. I'm sorry that you are dying. I'm sorry that we are both being asked to walk a road that feels simply impossible to walk. I think the telling of your story is important. I think it's good for our culture to know what is happening in Oregon. It's a discussion that needs to be brought out of the quiet corners and brought brightly into the light. You sharing your story has done that. It matters, and it's unbelievably important. So thank you. Dear heart, we simply disagree. Suffering is not the absence of goodness. It is not the absence of beauty. But perhaps it can be the place where true beauty can be known. In your choosing your own death, you are robbing those that love you with the tenderness, the opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending your love into your last breaths. 
As I sat on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story my daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. That last kiss, that last warm touch, that last breath matters. But it was never intended for us to decide when that last breath is breathed. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know him in your dying. Because in his dying, he protected my living, my living beyond this place. Brittany, when we trust Jesus to be the carrier, the protector, the redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. You have been told a lie, a horrible lie that your dying will not be beautiful, that the suffering will be too great. Today, my oncologist and I spoke of your dying, of my dying, and the beautiful partnership that I have with my doctors in carrying me to my last moments with gentle care. For 2,000 years, doctors have lived beside the beautiful stream of protecting life and lovingly meeting patients in their dying with grace. The doctor that prescribed you that pill that you carry with you that will hasten your last breath has walked away from the Hippocratic Oath that says, first, do no harm. He or she has walked away from the oath that has protected life and the beautiful dying that we are granted. The doctors agreeing to such medicines are walking away from the beautiful protection of the Hippocratic Oath. These are also people who are speaking in ugly tones to make those of us who believe in Jesus seem unsafe, unkind, or unloving. Will you forgive us for the voices that feel that they are screaming at you from a heart that isn't loving? But in my whispering, pleading, loving voice, dear heart, will you hear my heart ask you, beg you, plead with you not to take that pill? Yes, your dying will be hard, but it will not be without beauty. Will you trust me with that truth? More importantly, will you hear from my heart that Jesus loves you? He loves you. He loves you. He died an awful death upon that cross so that you would know him today, that we no longer live separate from him in our death. He died and his death happened. It is not simply a story. He died and he overcame death three days later. And in that overcoming of death, he overcame the death that you and I are facing in our cancer. He longs to know you, to shepherd you in your dying, and to give you life, and to give you life abundant, eternal life. For everyone living knowing death is imminent, that we will all one day face it, that question is most important. Who is this Jesus, and what does he have to do with my dying? Please do not take that pill before you ask yourself that question. It's a question we must all ask as we are all dying. 
I pray my words reach you. I pray they reach the multitudes that are looking at your story and believing the lie that suffering is a mistake, that dying isn't to be braved, that choosing our death is the courageous story. No, hastening death was never what God intended. But in our dying, he does meet us with his beautiful grace. The Hippocratic Oath matters, and those that are choosing to walk away from it need to be challenged. My heart hurts that they have decided to swim from the shores of grace that it protected in our living and dying. I get to partner with my doctor in my dying, and it's going to be a beautiful and painful journey for all of us. But hear me, it is not a mistake. Beauty will meet us in that last breath. On November 4th, 2014, an official with the Vatican spoke about Brittany and her decision to end her life, using her story to reiterate the position of the Catholic Church on the right to die debate, stating in part, quote, suicide is not a good thing. It is a bad thing because saying no to your life and to everything it means with respect to our mission in the world towards those around us. Brittany, after moving to Oregon to take advantage of the state's right to die law, aligned herself with the nonprofit organization Compassion and Choices. According to their website, they improve care, expand options, and empower everyone to chart their end-of-life journey. They envision a society that affirms life and accepts the inevitability of death, embraces expanded options for compassionate dying, and empowers everyone to choose end-of-life care that reflects their values, priorities, and beliefs. Across the United States, they work to ensure that healthcare providers honor and enable patients' decisions about their care. To make this vision a reality, Compassion and Choices works nationwide in communities, state legislatures, Congress, courts, and medical settings to educate the public about the importance of documenting end-of-life values and priorities and about the full range of available options. To empower every individual with achievable options, authoritative information, and constructive advice for guiding their care and engaging with their providers. To advocate for expanded choices, secure and ready access to them, and improve medical practice that puts patients first and values quality of life and treatment plans for terminal illnesses and to defend existing end-of-life options from efforts to restrict access. Well, the National Right to Life Committee asserted that Compassion and Choices exploited Brittany's illness to promote legislation of doctor-prescribed suicide in the United States. But Brittany's mom, she was not going to stay quiet in the face of all of this criticism. She wrote an open letter to the National Right to Life Committee to the Vatican, and to any other entity that was openly critical of Brittany's choice. Her letter read, I am Brittany Maynard's mother. I am writing in response to a variety of comments made in the press and online by individuals and institutions that have tried to impose their personal belief system on what Brittany and our family feel is a human rights issue. The imposition of belief on human rights issue is wrong 
To censure someone's personal choice as reprehensible because it doesn't comply with someone else's belief is immoral. My 29-year-old daughter's choice to die gently rather than suffer physical and mental degradation and intense pain does not deserve to be labeled as reprehensible by strangers a continent away who do not know the particulars of her situation. Reprehensible is a harsh word. It means very bad, deserving of strong criticism. Reprehensible is a word that I've used as a teacher to describe the actions of Hitler, other political tyrants, and the exploitation of children by pedophiles. As Brittany Maynard's mother, I find it difficult to believe that anyone who knew her would ever select this word to describe her actions. Brittany was a giver. She was a volunteer. She was a teacher. She was an advocate. She worked at making the world a better place to live. This word was used publicly at a time when my family was tender and freshly wounded. Grieving. Such strong public criticism from people we do not know, have never met, is more than a slap in the face. It's like kicking us when we struggle to draw a breath. People and institutions feel that they have the right to judge Britney's choices, may wound me and cause me unspeakable pain, but they do not deter me from supporting my daughter's choice. There is currently a great deal of confusion and arrogance standing in the way of Americans going gently into the good night. I urge Americans to think for themselves. Make your own wishes clear while you are competent. Make sure that you have all the options spelled out for you before you are diagnosed with an incurable, debilitating, painful disease. Do your own research. Ask your family to research and face the harsh reality with you. Ask your doctor to be brutally honest with you. Then make your personal choice about how you will proceed. It's your choice. The culture of cure has led us to a fairy tale belief that doctors can always fix our problems. We have lost sight of reality. All life ends. Death is not necessarily the enemy in all cases. Sometimes a gentle passing is a gift. Misguided doctors caught up in an aspirational belief that they must extend life whatever the cost cause individuals and families unnecessary suffering. Brittany stood up to the bullies. She never thought anyone else had the right to tell her how long she should have to suffer. The right to die for the terminally ill is a human rights issue, plain and simple. As I mentioned earlier, six states and Washington, D.C. now have a version of death with dignity laws on their books, as opposed to only three at the time when Brittany died. Americans remain divided when it comes to the proposal of laws such as these for the reasons that we've gone over throughout the course of this story. In California, Brittany's home state, a version of the bill was signed into law by Governor Brown on October 5, 2015, and went into effect on June 9, 2016. However, on May 15, 2018, a state judge struck down the law, citing it was improper to consider this bill 
during a special session of the state legislature that was meant to be focused on health care spending and access issues. But the judge's ruling was appealed and the law was reinstated a month later. And this is what Brittany herself had to say about her decision. On New Year's Day, after months of suffering from debilitating headaches, I learned that I had brain cancer. I was 29 years old. I'd been married for just over a year. My husband and I were trying for a family. Our lives devolved into hospital stays, doctors, consultations, and medical research. Nine days after my initial diagnoses, I had a partial craniotomy and partial resection of my temporal lobe. Both surgeries were an effort to stop the growth of my tumor. In April, I learned that not only had my tumor come back, but it was more aggressive and doctors gave me a prognosis of six months to live. Because my tumor is so large, doctors prescribed full brain radiation. I read about the side effects. The hair on my scalp would have been singed off. My scalp would have been left covered with first degree burns. My quality of life as I knew it would be gone. After months of research, my family and I reached a heartbreaking conclusion. There is no treatment that would save my life, and the recommended treatments would have destroyed the time that I had left. I considered passing away in hospice care at my San Francisco Bay Area home, but even with palliative medication, I could develop potentially morphine-resistant pain and suffer personality changes and verbal, cognitive, and motor loss of virtually every kind. Because the rest of my body is young and healthy, I am likely to physically hang on for a long time even though cancer is eating my mind. I probably would have suffered in hospice care for weeks or even months, and my family would have had to watch that. I did not want this nightmare scenario for my family so I started researching death with dignity. It's an end-of-life option for mentally competent, terminally ill patients with a prognosis of six months or less to live. It would enable me to use the medical practice of aid in dying. I could request and receive a prescription from a physician for medication that I could self-ingest to end my dying process if it becomes unbearable. I quickly decided that death with dignity was the best option for me and my family. We had to uproot from California to Oregon because Oregon is only one of a few states where death with dignity is authorized. I met the criteria for death with dignity in Oregon, but establishing residency in the state to make use of the law required a monumental number of changes. I had to find new physicians, establish residency in Portland, search for a new home, obtain a new driver's license, change my voter registration, and enlist people to take care of our animals, and my husband Dan had to take a leave of absence from his job. The vast majority of families do not have the flexibility, resources, and time to make all of these changes. I've had the medication for weeks. I am not suicidal. If I were, I would have consumed that medication a long time ago. I do not want to die, but I am dying, and I want to die on my own terms. I would not tell anyone else 
that she or he should choose death with dignity. My question is, who has the right to tell me that I don't deserve this choice? That I deserve to suffer for weeks or months in tremendous amounts of physical and emotional pain? Why should anyone have the right to make that choice for me? Now that I have my prescription filled, and it is in my possession, I have experienced a tremendous sense of relief. And if I decide to change my mind about taking the medication, I will not take it. Having this choice to end my life has become incredibly important. It has given me a sense of peace during a tumultuous time that otherwise would have been dominated by fear, uncertainty, and pain. Now, I am able to move forward in my remaining days or weeks I have on this beautiful earth, to seek joy and love and to spend time traveling to outdoor wonders of nature with those that I love. And I know that I have a safety net. I plan to celebrate my husband's birthday on October 26 with him and our family. Unless my condition improves dramatically, I will look to pass soon thereafter. I hope for the sake of my fellow American citizens that I'll never meet that this option is available to you. If you ever find yourself walking a mile in my shoes, I hope that you would at least be given the same choice and no one tries to take it from you. When my suffering becomes too great, I can say to all those I love, I love you, come be by my side, come say goodbye as I pass into whatever's next. I will die upstairs in my bedroom with my husband, my mother, my stepfather, and my best friend by my side and pass peacefully. I can't imagine trying to rob someone else of that choice. So, is physician-assisted death really the better option than the alternative, which would be hospice care? It's always going to be a matter of who you talk to. I read an article on CNN.com written by a doctor who read about Brittany's story, and he said in part, There are examples of hospice care that cannot adequately address the anxiety and suffering of dying patients. Though Oregon's Death with Dignity Act having passed in 1994, more than 1,100 people have obtained life-ending prescriptions. About 750 have used them. The law does provide safeguards against clinically depressed or mentally incompetent patients getting lethal drugs to end their lives. However, I still believe for the most part that hospice care is a better option than assisted suicide. Hospice offers team-based care with family involvement, often in a patient's home, that focuses on pain management and dying with some comfort and dignity. Hospice staff is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The modern hospice movement started in 1967 when Dame Cicely Saunders, a nurse, opened St. Christopher's Hospice in London. Saunders formulated three principles for easing the process of dying, relief from pain, preservation of dignity, and respect for the psychological and spiritual aspects of death. The number of American hospitals offering hospice care has nearly doubled since 2000 and growing nearly to 1,500 programs. Perhaps the most surprising finding from these programs is that hospice patients live a month longer 
on average than similar patients who did not receive such care. Unlike hospice care, assisted suicide is obviously a final and irreversible act. Ruling out the presence of clinical depression that may cloud a patient's judgment is not always straightforward. When depression lifts, the desire to die often lifts too. Only between 10% and 15% of those who attempt suicide eventually die by their own hands, suggesting that the desire to die is often changeable. As a doctor, I would like assisted suicide to be safe and available, but rare. Managing end-of-life care for patients like Brittany Maynard is never simple. And this doctor who wrote this quoted one of his terminally ill patients at the end. She was 83. She had grown tired of constantly struggling to breathe because she was dying of congestive heart failure. And she had asked this doctor to help her die. And she told him, quote, My husband said the hardest thing to do was die. I always thought it would be easy. Lastly, I wanted to take a moment to talk about Karen Ann Quinlan. We referenced her case earlier when we were discussing Terry Schiavo. She became an important figure early on in the United States regarding the right to die controversy. On April 15, 1975, when she was 21 years old, she had just moved out of her parents' house, which was in Roxbury Township, New Jersey, and she moved in with two roommates a few miles away in Byram Township. On this day, she was at a local bar celebrating a friend's birthday, but at the same time, it had been about two days since Karen had eaten anything because she was on a crash diet. She had reportedly purchased a dress that was a little bit too tight and was quickly trying to lose weight to fit into it. At this party, Karen was said to have consumed alcohol, gin and tonic specifically, and some Valium. She began to feel faint, so her friends took her home and put her to bed. Her friends checked on her about 15 minutes later but discovered that she was no longer breathing. They began to administer mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and summoned paramedics. Color began to come back to Karen's skin, but she never actually regained consciousness. She was brought to Newton Memorial Hospital. When she arrived, she was in a coma. She stayed there for nine days. And the whole time, she was completely unresponsive. Karen was transferred to St. Clair's Hospital, which was a larger facility. At the time that she was admitted, she weighed 115 pounds or 52 kilograms. During the time that Karen was in an extended period of respiratory failure, she had sustained brain damage that was irreversible. And her brain, like Terry's, was damaged so much so that she too was diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state. Her eyes no longer moved together in the same direction and her EEG reflected an abnormal slow wave brain activity. As the months passed and she remained in hospice, Karen's condition progressively deteriorated. Her weight would eventually drop to less than 80 pounds or 36 kilograms. She experienced unpredictable and violent thrashing of her arms and legs, and she was on a feeding tube and a ventilator to keep her alive. And then the legal battle began. 
Karen's parents requested that the ventilator be removed from their daughter. They believed that this constituted extraordinary means of prolonging life and that it caused her pain. The Morris County prosecutor threatened hospital officials with homicide charges if they complied with the wishes of the parents and removed the ventilator. The hospital in turn joined Karen's family in attempting to seek an appropriate protective order from the courts before removing the ventilator. Incidentally, extraordinary means are any procedures which might place an undue burden on the patient, family or others, and would not result in reasonable hope of benefiting the patient. A person or anyone representing that person can refuse extraordinary means of treatment even if this will hasten natural death, and this is considered ethical. And this, for Karen's parents, was a principle that they would employ in their case that dated back to Pope Pius VII in 1957. Karen's parents filed a suit on September 12, 1975, to request that the termination of the extraordinary means prolonging their daughter's life be halted. The argument was that Karen's right to make a private decision about what happens to her supersedes the state's right to keep her alive. But the guardian that the court appointed for Karen argued that disconnecting the ventilators would constitute homicide. But in November, the New Jersey Superior Court Judge Robert Muir denied the request, citing that Karen's doctors did not support removing her from the ventilator and that whether or not to do so was a medical decision not a judicial one, and removing the ventilator would violate statutes prohibiting homicide. Karen's parents appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and on March 31, 1976, the court granted their request, citing that the right to privacy extended to her parents' request as it was on Karen's behalf. So in May of 1976, Karen's ventilator was removed, but she didn't die. Unaided, Karen continued breathing, surprising everyone, doctors included. Karen's parents never requested that her feeding tube be removed, not feeling like this was an extraordinary means. Her mother stating, quote, We never asked to have her die. We just asked to have her put in a natural state so she could die in God's time. Karen was moved into a nursing care facility where she was given artificial nutrition via her feeding tube for nine more years. She passed away on June 11, 1985 of respiratory failure resulting from complications due to pneumonia. At the time of her death, she weighed 65 pounds or 29.48 kilograms. Karen's parents opened a hospice and memorial foundation in 1980 to honor her memory. Her court case continues to be associated with legal changes and hospital practices regarding the right of people to refuse extraordinary means of treatment, even in situations where cessation of treatment could end a life. Karen's case also continues to raise important questions in moral theology, bioethics, euthanasia, legal guardianship, and civil rights. Her case had a lasting effect on the practice of medicine and the law around the world. A substantial outcome of her case was the development of formal ethics committees in hospitals, nursing homes, and hospices. 
While Karen was alive, the extent of damage to her brainstem couldn't really be determined. However, after she died, her entire brain and spinal cord were carefully studied. While her cerebral cortex had moderate scarring, it seemed that her thalamus was extensively damaged bilaterally. Her brainstem, which controls breathing and cardiac functions, was undamaged. And these are the findings that suggested that the thalamus plays a particularly important role in consciousness. And this brings the 71st episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come and join me on the Facebook and share your thoughts about these stories, as well as all the other cases we've covered on this show. I would love to hear your feedback about this controversial issue that we've discussed today. Death with dignity. I will post an official comment thread and we can go from there. You can also join me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcasting production company located here in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find the links to all of our shows, all of our merchandise on the store, to the blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. This week in the United States, we are celebrating our Thanksgiving holiday. So I'm going to be taking this upcoming weekend off and the following weekend off as well as yours truly is turning another year older. I have a couple of projects I hope to get started on and I'll be back with a couple of regularly scheduled episodes in the two weeks before Christmas. Then I'll be taking another two weeks off at the end of the year for those holidays. But don't worry, I've got lots of things floating around for us in the very near future. So, to all of you who celebrate this holiday, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and to those who don't or are foreign, have a happy fourth Thursday of November. I will see you in a couple of weeks, and until next time, sweet dreams. and I'm the host of the Unseen Podcast. We look at missing person cases, unresolved crimes and lesser known stories from around the UK. We delve into cases that do not gain public attention, such as unidentified people and historic cold cases. If you're interested in true crime from the UK, then you might be interested in having a listen to the Unseen. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say, Goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGD Podcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. <laughs>